Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And in just the last few hours, we've had a lot of news on really major stories. So buckle up. We're going to go through all of it tonight. I want to take a minute right now to lay out the biggest developments we've had tonight. Because first on CNN, the former top Trump advisor, Stephen Miller, testifying for apparently several hours today to a federal grand jury in its criminal investigation of what took place on January 6th. And then there's Mark Meadows, the then president's right-hand man, who was literally in the room where it happened, hashtag Aaron Burr, for a whole lot of what transpired. Supreme Court of South Carolina ordering Meadows to now testify before a grand jury investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. So two of the then president's top enablers and right and maybe left-hand men facing grand juries who get to ask them the questions and demand some answers. And the verdict is in with the most significant DOJ prosecutions related to January 6th. Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes and fellow group member Kelly Meggs found guilty of the very serious charge of seditious conspiracy. Now, each of the five Oath Keeper defense convicted of at least one charge, not one got off on everything, that carries a maximum 20-year sentence. So I want to bring in with us now CNN political commentator David Urban, former federal prosecutor Shan Wu, and CNN senior national correspondent Sarah Seidner, who has been in this courtroom for, what, seven weeks now following this case, Sarah? It's a lot. I mean, it's been a lot. And so thank <laughs> God we got you here tonight to talk about it. I'm thrilled to have you. You two gentlemen, but Sarah in particular, <laughs> on this issue, because this was very significant. They had a lot riding, they being DOJ, okay. mm. a lot riding on what was thought to be a very political calculation. They were accused of a witch hunt continued. How dare you have these serious charges? What's this all about? What was it like for the prosecution in the room and the kind of general atmosphere of getting at least these convictions? Um, they congratulated each other um, mm. because they realized that this charge, it's a hard charge yeah. to, to put forward, and it's a rare charge. So this isn't something that I'm sitting at a table with a bunch of attorneys. Uh, I know this. But, like, it's not a charge that you would see regularly. I think the last time this was, this was charged in a trial was in Michigan 10 years ago. So this is a really unusual thing to go for. And it's a concept that the jury really has to understand, get behind, understand all of the facets, because there are several facets of it. Um, it's really about, you know, forcibly stopping the peaceful transfer of presidential power in this case. Um, but there was... Probably, I, I can't even, thousands of pieces of uh, evidence brought by the prosecution. That included, you know, the words of the defendants themselves. That was a huge part of this case. And if they heard these words, which some people would say, okay, the defense is saying, it's just bombastic, it's just talk, it's just them, you know, blowing off steam or trying to be grandiose. But the jury saw that in the case of Elmer Stewart Rose III, and in the case of one of his top lieutenants, uh, Kelly Meggs, that they were guilty of seditious conspiracy. Um, and so watching all of this unfold and seeing what the jury went through just in the seven weeks of testimony, it was really heavy, uh, to, to, for lack of a better way to describe it. It was a weight. They felt the weight of it. The whole courtroom felt the weight of it. And the judge in particular made it very clear how this was going to go as far as how he expected the decorum in his courtroom. And he was praised 
by the by the defense attorneys, like praised in a way I haven't heard in a long time, where they really appreciated that even though they had a spat, I mean, there was a fight, like screaming match at one point before the jury came into this trial, before they chose a jury. And in the end, um, I think all of the people in that court agreed that if you wanted to look at the American justice system and, and the American way, this was an example that you could hold up. That's an important point, especially given the fact that when you're talking about who would oversee these trials, given the atmosphere and the accusations of this being very political in nature, to have the defense team complimenting yeah. this Obama appointee. And I know many judges often cringe when we in the media will talk about who appointed who, because they think to themselves, well, you are buying into and leading people to believe that who appointed us is going to take precedence over how we rule. I point that out only to suggest what Sarah is talking about and the idea of you're, this is the climate we're in and that there was the compliment extended. It's important, too, in terms of that gamble and calculus here. I mean, Shan, you've been a federal prosecutor. The idea of a charge like this being brought, and we showed that not every charge stuck with every defendant. Some would say that that gives greater credibility to the jury's deliberation, that it wasn't just, you know, you get everything, the entire kit and caboodle. When you look at this, what does it say to you about the strength of the case as it related to all the defendants that only two had that high charge? Well, I think it says that the charging decisions were carefully made and that the jury looked at it very carefully. They parsed it out, which is exactly what you want them to do. I think the note that they'd sent out asking for clarification on the seditious conspiracy charge indicates that's a tougher charge for them to grasp. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that it's necessarily that hard of a charge to always prove in theory, but it's certainly very rare Thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, we don't I, want common right. conspiracy <laughs> cases like this. It's, right. not, it's not a good thing in our country. Exactly. And for that reason, I think DOJ isn't that used to bringing that kind of charge. And they really had to put a lot of effort into figuring out how they would present it. The fact that all of them got, I think all of them got convicted for the obstruction of the official proceeding. Right, that's right. I think indicates that is a little bit easier for the jury to get. And, you know, David, on that point, we're I mean, just thinking about in the grander scheme of things, Even aside from this criminal prosecution, you've got, in different cases, the Georgia investigation, Mark Meadows being told, no, you're going to have to answer questions. Um, He's a South Carolina resident, why the South Carolina Supreme Court was involved in this. You've got Stephen Miller testifying in a grand jury proceeding. It's all around that same core nucleus of facts, the idea of what led up to and what happened on January 6th. Politically, in your mind, what message does this send? Is there a ripple effect, or is this really compartmentalized and says, okay, well, look, you got a grand, you know, um, a good nighted committee coming up for January 6th. So what? There was a conviction. Politically, they're untouchable. What do you say? Yeah, listen, I, I think the, the, the judicial part of it and the politics need to be separated, or should be separated, really. Um, these gentlemen who, who broke the law, right, are going to be held accountable, just like the folks who who actually violated, you know, the sanctuary of the Congress, who are up there, you know, get charged with criminal trespass, the other things. Um, the, the political part of it, just like, you know, in, in, in an impeachment, there's a political aspect to all of this, right? I, I don't think at the end of the day that, that the president, just in my own opinion, Shen and, you know, the rest of the lawyers in America will, will opine on this as well. Shen and the lawyers of America. You're one Bravo But my point is, you know, a, a conspiracy <laughs> charge against a group of people like this, right? And a conspiracy is a... Is a, is a you can bring a lot of stuff in and kind of look at it. It's a, it's a charge that you can really throw the kitchen sink at. It's a little bit easier to prove, I dare say, than you know trying to 
get the president on the hook for this, right? Mm. Get the president, that, that's a much more tenuous charge and I think will be much, much more difficult to make. At the end of the day, you know, I, I personally don't see how, you know, Merrick Garland's gonna end up bringing a charge that's gonna stick against the president of the United States here. Maybe he does. I, I think there'll be, you know, the, the, the obstruction in Georgia case, the, you know, there's other cases I think that are probably more likely to result in an indictment yeah. than, than this January 6th stuff, at least on the part of the president. Well, there is the special counsel, right? So Merrick Garland, in a sense, has sort of removed himself at least one degree of separation, maybe two, by having special counsel for this very purpose now that Trump has declared. But I do wonder, I mean, you speak to the larger point. Although, of course, you've been following this trial, Sarah, of these particular defendants, you know full well that the immediate knee-jerk reaction for everyone is, okay, what will this mean for Trump? Okay, now what what about Trump? What about Trump? And although this conspiracy relates to these specific defendants and the guilt assigned to them does not translate everywhere, that is on the tip of everyone's tongue and the the question being asked. Did you get a sense through through the trial um, that he was a main focus of the prosecution in a similar way as he is for the January 6th committee? Or was it really compartmentalized? Donald Trump was not part of this trial in the sense that the, the prosecutors were very careful in being very direct as to who was on trial, what they were on trial for, why they were on trial. Um, and there were so many pieces of evidence that, yes, of course, Donald Trump's name came up over and over again because his name came out of the mouth of the defendants in text messages and signal messages and secret recordings. Um, Stuart Rhodes in particular, and I think one of the things that sets him apart is, first of all, he is the founder and creator of this militia group known as the Oath Keepers, um, which, he, which he founded in 2009, um, not long after President Obama took office. And so he was a focus because he was the one that talked the most and that said the most um, violent and outrageous things. He was talking days after it was determined that Joe Biden had won this election against Donald Trump, talking about civil war, you know, get your mind, body and soul ready. So there were a lot of words that he used, a lot of text messages and signal messages that he used that helped to convict him. They're using the defendant's own words against them. And then to a lot of people's surprise, Three of these defendants took the stand in their own defense, and he was the first one. And so he was emotional, which I think surprised a lot of people. He, he choked up several times. Uh, the jury didn't buy it. The jury didn't buy it. They, they heard what he said. They listened to him. They listened to his defense. He is a former um, lawyer. He was disbarred, but he is a Yale-trained lawyer. Um, and he got up there and said, I don't think this was constitutional. I don't think Biden or Trump won. They didn't buy it. And I think that's important to, to say that the DOJ really went after each and every person with the, with the evidence they had on each and every person. This was not so, actually about Donald and, Trump. And Laura, I'm just going to say real quickly, um, and I think that's a big distinction between this and the January 6th hearings, right? This, you have discrete actions, criminal actions, which you could prove, right, and, and, and really make it stick and not bring up the specter of Trump, 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 Trump did this, Trump did that, really hanging on the people that did the crimes, right? Mm. I think that's you're going to find these criminal trespass cases, these other people who are going to be tried for doing what they did on January 6th. Well, look, we've got about, what, 35 days left of this particular lame duck session before the new Congress is sworn in. Maybe it'll be a report that tells what we need to know from January 6th. Can, I, can there be a report? I'm just going to put that out there. A report we can actually read and thumb through, maybe buy like the Mueller report? I don't know. Just putting it out there, everyone. <laughs> Stick around. We have more about this, and we have a lot of news to get to these days that, frankly, brings America's to get together. We don't have a lot of that. 
But guess what? Today, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the victorious Team USA. They are celebrating their victory over Iran today in the World Cup. Well, the U.S. men's national team advancing to the World Cup knockout stage. The team coming out on top with a one to nothing win in a tough game against Iran today. Team USA's Christian Pulisic scoring the winning goal, but not without suffering an abdominal injury, we're learning later, with some sort of a pelvic contusion. Take a look now at their rowdy welcome home when they return to their hotel tonight. Now, the U.S. will go on to face the Netherlands this Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern, so be sure to tune in for that. I want to bring in now CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan, also CNN's Tom Foreman, Don Riddell, CNN host of World Sport, and CNN contributor Carrie Champion. Wow, what a lineup we have here to talk about this important <laughs> moment. I'm sure you were all watching. I don't know what kind of snacks you had at the time, but we'll talk about that in a different segment. I have to say, though, when we've been watching all these things happening, I mean, this was a win or go home game right now. And, um, it was an important moment that's been more than just about the match itself, Christine, and thinking about where things stand because people were tuning in, in large part because of what was happening back in the respective countries about the um, removal of that Islamic regime emblem and the flag. This was a very significant moment internationally, don't you think? Oh, without a doubt. And, and keep in mind, this team, the U.S. men's national soccer team, Laura, is the team that actually willingly gave up prize money mm. so that the women, the U.S. women's national team, obviously incredibly successful team, could actually have equal pay. That was a conversation. Explain more about what that Title IX means then. What do you mean they give up? Their, they're they're going to split it now? Exactly. So the, the $13 million that is now guaranteed to the, because of the U.S. men moving into the round of 16, it is split 6.5 million for the men, 6.5 million for the women. That's extraordinary. No other nation's doing that. Um, these, these are Title IX males who are not like they weren't raised like their dads or their grandfathers, and they have a much different outlook not only about women's equality in terms of pay, but these are the same men who've been talking about standing with the Iranian protesters. Obviously, the emblem issue that with U.S. soccer, U.S. soccer and the U.S. men's national team are, have really, I think, distinguished themselves, obviously, on the field of play, sure. as we saw today, but I think even more so in terms of our culture and the stands they have taken and will continue to take as the tournament goes on. You know, Tom, on that very point about the idea of where things are and just that, that Title IX notion that Christine has raised, and that's just really significant to think about what that really means and what a moment that is for the world to see and be aware of, given the domestic situation back in Iran, for example, we well, have absolutely. these ongoing protests. Absolutely. You know, these games are often uh, symbolic of a big geopolitical situation. Uh, in this case, where one of the very fundamental questions in Iran is what rights will women have? What rights do they have in that regime to play against a team that, as Christine points out, was standing up for some of those very principles? It's a very, a very uh, important moment. Uh, now, what it means ultimately inside Iran don't really know. We'll find out what happens with that team when they head back there. Although I do want to point out when that winning goal was scored, I also suffered an abdominal injury. <laughs> it, was, it, was a very, it was a very dramatic and thrilling yeah. moment here. Thrilling here, but also important in really big ways. And by the way, I mean, Carrie, there were people in Iran who were celebrating the victory for the U.S. I mean, there was this very poignant moment. You can actually see this moment when they were celebrating and they, in response to the United States being the victor in this particular match. But there was also a moment, Carrie, that really sticks out to me. And you have spoken about this so eloquently in the past. And just, I wonder if it struck you as well. 
just how significant, broadly speaking, the national anthem or the decision not to say it or the decision to kneel or the decision to be punished for your refusal to abide by it has played a role. I mean, just look at this screen. Because over the course of history, from what happened in 1968 in Mexico City to what happened on the field with Colin Kaepernick, to what's happened in the NBA and, and the WNBA, I would mention, to even the Iranians choosing not to initially sing the national anthem as a nod to what we've been talking about today. They were later obviously told that um, there might be some threats to their family and their safety and security, which is very telling. But when you think about the significance of that and this world stage, what goes through your mind? Well, you know, first and foremost, athletes have always been at the front lines of these issues, especially when the implications are global. What I find arguably the most heartwarming is that what we have been asking, I think, not necessarily asking, but what we require of certain athletes is to make really tough decisions. They were told before they went to the World Cup, don't do anything, no protest, pay attention. We don't want any problems. You'll get a you'll get a yellow card if you if you decide to speak out or speak up against something. And that really is an unfair position to put them in in so many instances. So for that Iranian team to say, no, I am not going to sing the national anthem, that was a very bold choice. I think arguably what we witnessed yesterday and today, and I'm going to refer to Captain Tyler Adams, his his response towards the Iranian reporter, I don't know if you guys saw this, his response was so eloquent and and, and so respectful and so... Um, in terms of sobering and disarming, you had to want to root for the Americans. He understood that those players on the other side in Iran were in a very tough position. He understood how there was this, this venomous attitudes towards Americans based on things that they, the players themselves had nothing to do with. When I mean, you talk about that Islamic emblem being removed from, the, from their flag. And he was able to endear everyone, including the people in Iran on his side. And so when these when these athletes decide to take these stands, they really are risking a lot. Some people are risking, obviously, an Iran family and friends. Here at home, you're having people go against you, perhaps not necessarily being praised as you want to. And so when they make these bold gestures, these gestures that say, I am with you, I see you, and I understand it is not right, and I'll do whatever I can in whatever way I can, we have to honor that. Um, There are a lot of problems that are happening in Qatar. And this is one of these highlighted moments. And I'm glad we were able to get away. I really am glad to see that and think about that. And Don, how can I not go to you about this very point as well? Because can you just speak to the significance for the for the the diehard true football fans, we'll call them to those who just love Ted Lasso? I mean, the significance of what we're talking about here, the idea that the United States, I mean, really the, not to be dismissive of their extraordinary talent, but in the grow, overall landscape, we're known for our women to be the best mm-hmm. in the world, thinking about it. And to have this significant moment, tell me about the significance and what this is like for the United States to be in this position now. Well, it's a wonderful position for this American team to be in, Laura. Uh, The excitement was that this young team, one of the youngest teams in the tournament, would be ready to go for the next World Cup in four years' time, which the United States is co-hosting with Mexico and Canada. But they already seem to have uh, exceeded expectations with their performances. They're now into the next round where they're going to play the Netherlands on Saturday. That is going to be a really, really tough game. But if they can get through that... This is the kind of tournament where anything could happen. And 
these guys are just getting going. But I do want to speak a little bit about covering this event here in Qatar, the build-up to it. It's unlike anything I've ever experienced before. Mm. The political kind of backdrop and sidebar stories we've discussed, to go to a game where you might expect both sides of supporters to have a sense of animosity between them. There was nothing like that. But with the Iranian supporters, you had the fans here who wanted the Iranian team to win because they were pro-regime. You had the Iranian supporters here who really didn't know what they wanted their team to accomplish. They, they really couldn't work out if it was better if they won or if they lost. I spoke to an Iranian fan before the game. He wouldn't give me his last name. He was brave enough to give me his first name. But he said, I've come here to this World Cup and I want to see them lose. I don't want to see them go any further. I, I know how the government exploits the team and uses them for political ends. And I don't want any more of this. And the footage that we've seen coming out of Iran in the last few hours is absolutely extraordinary. And it really speaks to the sense of betrayal that these people have felt that they are now openly in the streets celebrating the demise of their team. I saw one clip where an American flag was even being waved out the car window. These are people who are taught to chant death to America while they're in primary school. And now here they are celebrating the United States victory, celebrating the demise of their team. And their players have been through such a roller coaster. We, we saw the emotion of them at the end. I can't even imagine what's going through their mind. They're disappointed as athletes to be out of the World Cup, but everything they've experienced over the last week and a half, I mean, it's just, it's just something that we can't imagine. American athletes, as you say, we, we would like them to take a stand. We would like them to speak out on human rights and civil rights. But what these guys in Iran are going through is just a whole other world, I think. Don, I'm so glad that you brought that perspective. I mean, escapism that people seek out when it comes to sports is really a luxury and one that we can't necessarily always adhere to in times like this. And, you know, there's these great op-eds all out right now about whether it's better to have Iran still in because it, it, it promotes the conversation around what's happening in Iran. And now that they're out, will that conversation end? Well, this one has to end temporarily, but we'll be looking ahead to Saturday and watching this match from the U.S. men's team against the Netherlands. Thank you all. Hope you're getting some rest and some enjoyment out there, Don, and everyone else. Thank you for being a part of it tonight. It was really exciting to see this happen. Thank you. Well, from the politics of sports to what's actually happening here on Capitol Hill, a critical vote in the Senate passing a bill to protect same-sex marriage, and it is expected to pass in the House next week. But what happens if the Supreme Court overturns that 2015 Obergefell decision? Well, Jim Obergefell himself says he's not celebrating today, and he'll explain why next. Well, the Senate tonight passing the Respect for Marriage Act 61-236. Now, the bill protects same-sex and interracial marriage, and all the members of Democratic caucus voting yes, along with 12 Republicans. The House will take it up next week, and once it passes, which is expected to do, it goes to President Biden's desk for his signature. 
Now, people are celebrating the bipartisan nature of all of this. And yes, we should absolutely cheer that because bipartisan victories, well, they're pretty rare these days. But when you unpack the Respect for Marriage Act, there's actually a lot more to it. Let me explain. You remember, of course, back in June when Roe v. Wade was overturned by the conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Well, many people wondered, including myself, if marriage rights would be next and immediately turned to Congress to try to do something about it. What was that? Well, to codify the protections so that such rights would not be at the mercy of a Supreme Court or any court for that reason, to ensure that those rights were legislatively guaranteed. So is what President Biden will sign in line with the Supreme Court's landmark 2015 or Burgerfeld decision? Does it codify what was said there? Not exactly. So the new law would assure full benefits for marriage, regardless of the couple's sex or race or ethnicity or national origin. Federal government will be required to recognize marriages that were valid in a state when performed. But notice the nuance of what I just said. It had to be valid in the state before the feds are required to recognize it. The state, therefore, still holds some pretty powerful cards in its ability to define what exactly is a so-called valid marriage. Now, this new law will not require states to issue a marriage license that's contrary to state law, and organizations that are religious won't be required to perform same-sex marriages. So why do the states retain such power? Well, there's a word called federalism, a concept that says when it comes to power, Congress has to stay in its lane, and the rest of the road, well, it belongs to the states. Now, if the Supreme Court were to overturn Obergefell, which legalized same-sex marriage, a state could pass a law to ban same-sex marriage, but that state would be required to recognize a same-sex marriage from another state. Now, there is a big exception in terms of what the feds would have to recognize, and that's polygamy. Uncle Sam won't be required to protect polygamous marriages because the federal government will defer to a state's definition of marriage. Well, the law won't offer all the protection that the Obergefell decision offers as of right now. Remember there, in Obergefell, states must allow and recognize same-sex marriages under the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment. Codifying something into federal law does not mean you codify it at the state level. That's what you call federalism by design. Despite the fact that Congress does not hold all of the cards, though, they certainly did play their hand in this matter. A lot of political games had to have been played and successfully to get where we are today. The question is, given that hand, let's see if the voters at the state level like the cards they have been dealt when it comes to codifying these rights. I want to bring in Jim Obergefell, who was the plaintiff in the now infamous 2015 Obergefell versus Hodges decision. Jim, I'm glad to see you. Welcome to the program. How are you? Thanks, Laura. I'm happy to be here. I wish it were for better reasons, but thanks for having me on. You know, it's interesting because some would look at this, Jim, and think it's counterintuitive. Shouldn't people be celebrating the codification of this decision? And at first glance, it sounds like when Congress says we're going to codify and make sure we've got same-sex marriage on the books, that that's exactly what it's done. But you don't think that it does. And I've explained, of course, the reasons why. But do you think it should have gone further? And are you celebrating this Senate victory for now? No, I am not celebrating, Laura. I will say I'm happy that at least something has been done 
something that we will have to fall back on should the Supreme Court overturn Obergefell in the future. But this act, I find it curious that it's called the Respect for Marriage Act because this act does not respect the LGBTQ plus community, our marriages, our relationships, or our families. And the fact that this act would allow states to once again deny marriage licenses to same-sex couples, where is the respect in that? And I really just continually come back to this, Laura. How on earth does my marriage to John or does any same-sex marriage harm any other person or, or any other marriage in this country? It doesn't. So, yes, I'm happy that there is at least something that will be codified should Obergefell be overturned. I, I, I'm happy to have this as opposed to having everything be taken away. But this is not respect for marriage. This is this would take us back to a time where we are once again second-class citizens who are given something that isn't marriage, isn't respected and protected, and offered equally to every person in this country. And that's my issue with the Respect for Marriage Act. Now, to clarify on one point, the, the law would ensure, and I don't want to take away from any of the points you've raised, but just to mm -hmm. clarify for the audience, if a state were to ban same-sex marriage in their own respective state, the law would require them to respect a marriage that is same-sex, that is valid and in a, di in a different state, to honor that sort of notion. But your point is well taken about the breadth of protection not being universal. And I understand there's also this moment um, from Senator Cynthia Loomis, who is out of Wyoming, a Republican. And listen to what she had to say today to explain her vote in favor. Remember, it was unanimous for Democrats, the Senate, and 12 Republican senators. Here was her explanation as to why, Jim. For the sake of our nation today and its survival, we do well by taking this step, not embracing or validating each other's devoutly held views, but by the simple act of tolerating them. And that, Madam President, explains my vote. You know, you have to cringe on the idea of the tolerance aspect. I suspect that is your view as well. Absolutely. And, you know, to your point earlier, Laura, the fact that there could be people in 30-some states across the nation who are unable to get a marriage license and get married in the state they call home, that is not equal. That is not respect. Now, to this point about tolerance, you're right. I have to laugh at that because this bill, this act that had religious freedom, so-called religious freedom amendments attached to it, this is not about respecting or tolerating anyone else's religious beliefs. This is about one specific group of people who believe their interpretation of their religion is more important than any other and more important than human beings in the public sphere. That is not tolerance. Religious freedom means that people have the ability, the right to practice their religion of choice, their faith in their home and in their house of worship. It does not mean using their religion to persecute others who do not share that same faith structure. So this is not about tolerance. This is about kowtowing to people who want 
preference for their religion, their interpretation of their particular religion in the public sphere. And that is not religious freedom. Jim Obergefell, thank you so much for your insight tonight. It's appreciated. Thanks, Laura. David Urban is back and joining us, CNN political commentator Hillary Rosen and CNN Supreme Court reporter Ariane DeVogue. Ariane, let me pick up exactly where Jim left off on this notion of religious freedom. Um, This does not mirror the Obergefell decision. It's not precise by any touch of the imagination. But because of federalism, because of maybe the competition of the court, can you just explain a little bit about why you think the religious liberty aspect of it was top of mind? Right. Well, you know, in 2015, when the court issued Obergefell, nobody would have thought that this bill was necessary, right? Mm -hmm. Justice Kennedy issued that sweeping decision, clearing the way for gay marriage uh, nationwide. No one would have thought that this was necessary. And then, as you said, because of Roe v. Wade, you know, Justice Alito, in that opinion, said, look, this is this opinion on Dobbs is just about abortion. It's not about anything else. But then Justice Clarence Thomas, in that concurring opinion, he was not on that same page. Remember, he said, uh, in future cases, we should consider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. And you remember that the liberals, they picked up on that right away. And they said, look, Clarence Thomas is not on the same page as Alito. They started raising these alarms, and that's how we got to today, right? So you talk a little bit about the religious liberty. We do see some um, um, exceptions here for religious liberty, and that's what's important at the Supreme Court right now because they care about that issue. Uh, They cared about it last term in two big cases, and we have another case that's going to be argued next week all about somebody who designs websites to celebrate marriages, but does not want to design such a website for same-sex couples. They think that they should be accepted, and that's before the Supreme Court. And this conservative court is probably going to rule in favor of that person. I mean, it's the, the layering of all this. Everything seems to lead to the next thing. Hillary, what's been your reaction? I mean, you were listening to the interview with Jim. Mm-hmm. Did you have a sense of reaction to... It's dissatisfaction. Yeah, I, Jim's an old friend of mine, and I respect what he says. But, you know, the forum we're in now is a political forum, right? The legislative forum is a forum of compromise by its nature. And this bill was a compromise. We would not be here if it were not for this kind of radical right Supreme Court that is seems somewhat determined to unwind everything. And we wouldn't be here, actually, if we didn't have a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House. Like, this would not happen next year. The House would not do this um, next year. And that's why I worry about more decisions coming out of the courts, unwinding civil rights that people have depended on, that they live on, and, and not having a Congress that can codify this stuff. But look, it's not critical things have happened today. If you're already married, you don't have to worry about your marriage being unwound. That's a really important thing for families, right? And I'm gay. This, I'm not married, but, you know, it matters. You don't want your marriage unwound. The other thing is, yes, he's right. If you live in Wyoming, you're going to have to go to Nevada to get married if you're a same-sex couple. Mm. Um, and that's a pain, and it's not fair, and it is discriminatory. But, that's what you, but once you get back to your home in Wyoming, Wyoming is required to recognize your marriage under this new law. So it does make some practical things safe for same-sex couples. And I think, you know, that is something that we have to be uh, happy about. 
considering the alternative, which would be what happened in the Dobbs decision, the abortion decision, which has thrown everything into disarray in the um, reproductive health space and women's rights, knocking us back 50 years. I hear you. And the idea of, I mean, you describe a a, a low bar probably universally in the social spectrum, but in politics, were these the compromises that were necessary for those 12 Republicans to sign on? Yeah, so listen, I I think there should be, you know, as Hillary points out, this is Washington, D.C. Jim obviously doesn't work here, right? Nothing gets done in this town, right? For this to pass is really amazing. It's taken a lot of effort on a lot of people's parts. Um, to get to where we are today, right? I was one of the Republicans that, you know, signed on to a letter urging the Senate to pass this bill. Um, it's important uh, and uh, for a variety of reasons that, that uh, Jim articulated and Hillary knows and articulated. And, and so, you know, it is. We had 47 Republicans in the House uh, vote for this. We had 12 Republicans, a wide range of folks from really liberal folks to very conservative people. Whether Whatever Cynthia Loomis did or didn't do, she still voted yes for it. It's a big deal. You had Todd Young, you had really conservative people vote for this. And, uh, and I, I think it's a big victory. You know, maybe not, though, it may not be the whole, you know, what everybody wanted and, 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 and what Jim wanted and what others. But I think it's a very positive step forward and should be celebrated as what's the art of the possible in this town. If people want to get things done, it's what can happen when, when people join together and try to get things accomplished. I mean... The fact that bipartisanship is the pinnacle. Every no vote was no. a Republican. I hear you. I hear you. But, 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 but when, we face, when we face this in the, in the House, yeah. in, in the Congress next yeah. year of, but, after the Supreme Court, we're going to, something gonna, else is going to get rolled back. It's going to pass, gonna pass back. the Senate. I mean, it's going to pass the House. We're going to pick up some more folks. And so I think we should celebrate. I think it's something that bipartisanship, when we, ha- when we do something good in Washington, people should celebrate. Well, there you go. Well, it's I'll, a, it's I'll a sign of relief, the, I think. I'll bring out the balloon. Had I known you were coming, I would have baked a cake. <laughs> up next, he got a racist letter after putting up an inflatable black Santa on his front lawn. So what did Chris Kennedy do? What anyone would do. He went to Santa camp and became a black Santa himself. I'll tell about his story next. Christmas is a special holiday for a lot of us, and especially for Chris Kennedy, a married father in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Now, two years ago, he put an inflatable black Santa on his front lawn so that his little girl, his daughter, could see that Santa looks just like her. Unfortunately, someone sent him a racist letter demanding that Kennedy take that inflatable down, insisting that Santa Claus is white. Now, determined not to be intimidated, he put up a second black Santa, decided that he needed to do even more to make sure that children of color felt included. This is the type of people that I live around. All of a sudden, we got a problem with black Santa. Have you always seen Santa as being white? Yes. I wish there was like a variety of Santas that come in any different state and form, you know? So Chris Kennedy enrolled in Santa camp to become a professionally trained Santa Claus. And now he's black Santa for his entire community. His story is part of a documentary on Santa camp that's streaming on HBO Max, CNN's sister network. And Chris Kennedy joins me now live. Chris, it's so nice to see you. Look at the beard. It's already there. I'm already feeling jolly. I'm on hopefully the nice list. We'll see after this interview. You'll keep me on that. But I have to ask you, I mean, you set out based on what happened in your community and this letter that you received. Um, Before we get into that, just tell me why it was important to you to even 
have this inflatable Santa and for your daughter to see a black Santa Claus? Well, for me, it's one of those things. If I didn't grow up seeing it, um, there wasn't very inclusive uh, Christmas decorations and, and things of that nature growing up. So I wanted to make sure that she got to grow up and see it. So my wife and I searched year round to find all sorts of decorations that um, represent us as a family and, and uh, show her that she is a part of the world um, mm-hmm. overall. That's a beautiful sentiment and a lesson that all parents are hoping their children will feel. And I, I you know, I might even get to dignify the letter. I really am so interested in what you did about it, because I had never heard of a Santa camp. And the fact that there is one and you went there and you shared your experience as to why you were there. You're the only black Santa at the Santa camp. And I'm just wondering when you talked to the different people who are participants in it um, and, and you talked about it, what was the reaction of the greater community of those who were equally invested in becoming the role model of Santa Claus in their communities? Well, the interesting thing is the Santa community um, is very welcoming and really does want uh, diversity in Santas. They want all kids to be happy and be seen um, and, and, and be represented. Uh, people were upset, not only that uh, with the letter, there came a picture. They were upset for that Santa whose picture was doctored to give me a thumbs down. Uh, but they're also upset that somebody would not truly know the full story of Christmas or uh, even St. Nicholas, who is Turkish, and know that he had brown skin. And if you follow the actual history of Santa Claus, he was originally brown. And Coca-Cola in their ads just happened to use a, a white actor. And that's what we know today. But overall, the Santa community actually is very welcoming of uh, of all Santas. Hmm. Well, that's important to think about it, the idea of Jolly St. Nick, as they say, and to see you in that particular role. You're going to be at a, a Christmas parade in Little Rock and the city of Maumelle as well. A lot of people will see you, and a lot of people, I hope, will catch more of this important story, Chris, by watching Santa Camp. It's streaming on our sister network, HBO Max. Thanks for being here and, and sharing that spirit with us today. We'll be right back. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. In this season of giving, we want to show you how you can help our 2022 Top 10 CNN heroes continue their important work and have your donations match dollar for dollar. Here's Anderson. I'm Anderson Cooper. Each of this year's Top 10 CNN Heroes proves that one person really can make a difference. And again, this year, we're making it easy for you to support their great work. Just go to CNNHeroes.com and click Donate beneath any 2022 Top 10 CNN Hero to make a direct contribution to that hero's fundraiser. You'll receive an email confirming your donation, which is tax-deductible in the United States. No matter the amount, you can make a big difference in helping our heroes continue their life-changing work. And right now, through January 3rd, your donations will be matched dollar for dollar up to a total of $50,000 for each of this year's honorees. CNN is proud to offer you this simple way to support each cause and celebrate all of these everyday people who are changing the world. You can donate from your laptop, your tablet, or your phone. Just go to CNNHeroes.com. Your donation in any amount will help them help others. Thanks. 
and all of our top 10 CNN heroes will be honored at CNN Heroes, an all-star tribute hosted by Anderson Cooper with special guest co-host Kelly Ripa, live Sunday, December 11th. We'll be right back. Republican leaders ramping up their condemnation of former President Trump for having dinner at Mar-a-Lago with Nick Fuentes, a white supremacist and Holocaust denier. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy saying there's no room in the GOP for Fuentes. But Senator Mitch McConnell going further, questioning Trump's fitness to run for office again. There is no room in the Republican Party for anti-Semitism, or white supremacy. And anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. Also today, former Trump, Trump, former top Trump advisor Stephen Miller testifies before a federal grand jury investigating the January 6th insurrection. Now, while Trump's former deputy White House chief of staff, Tony Ornato, meets with the House January 6th committee. We'll get to all of that tonight. But first, can we just start with what was a bright spot in the day today? It's now a bright light at night. The Empire State Building in New York City lit up in red, white, and blue. Why? Well, they're honoring the U.S. men's soccer team victory over Iran at the World Cup. And just take a look for a moment it's just how excited the team was, along with their fans, as they returned to their hotel tonight. <laughs> Families of the men's team are in Qatar to witness today's victory. Staying up late tonight for us and joining me now are Harry and Vicki Perry, the grandparents of midfielder Kellen Acosta. I'm so happy to see both of you. Thank you for staying up late and helping us to cheer on your grandson. I just have to know what it was like in that moment. I mean, I'm a mother of small kids. The number of orange slices you got to cut, the number of games you got to go to and watch the kids run on these fields before they're any good. What was it like seeing your grandson out there in this way? It was fantastic. Exhilarating. He's yeah. living his dream. Exactly. And and it was uh, just as much uh, of an enjoyment for us as it was for the entire team. Yeah. i tell you what, the guys were fantastic. The people here are fantastic. And this was uh, just icing on the cake for us. It really made grandparents proud. I mean, I can only imagine what it was like. And the energy, talking about the energy in the room, because, you know, it's not as if people expected the United States to, although we all support them, there were a lot of people who did not expect them to go as far as they've gone right now. We're so proud that they have. But what was it like in the energy in the crowd? It wasn't as if you were the only ones cheering for this team. I mean, there was a significant, you know, spirit in the crowd rooting for the U.S., Oh, it was. Yeah. You know, uh, since we're from the United States, we've traversed uh, nine time zones. So it was uh, ex- <laughs> extremely nice to have uh, all the folks that were there from the U.S., the families. And, of course, there was a quite a big contingent from Iran since they only had to travel across the Persian Gulf. But uh, it was ecstatic. It was electrifying. And we just had a phenomenal time. And, Grandma, when you're it looking at what's happening, go yeah. ahead, Kellen. Go ahead. About I don't want to leave you out. Go ahead. 
it was just great. It was exhilarating to be there, to see the guys on the field, to see my grandson on the field and playing, and the fans from the United States just did a fabulous job. What I really appreciated seeing um, was in, in the presence of these players was how, frankly, diverse this team is. To see the representation, to see the spectrum represented, to see the world watching the athleticism and the camaraderie and the skill and the absolute positive you know, spirit that these players had. What was it like for you seeing on this world stage this very diverse team? Oh, it was exciting. You know, it was not only uh, racially diverse, uh, it was diverse uh, in terms of most of the players are quite young, but uh, it was diverse in terms of uh, having uh, players from MLS as well as from uh, European teams and to see them gel and meld together and uh, and play as one was just, like I say, exhilarating. And uh, we couldn't have been prouder of the guys. Well, Harry, Vicky, I'm surprised you still have your voices. I mean, I'm surprised you still even have your voices right now. Are you sticking around <laughs> for Saturday to watch them play the Netherlands? Uh, hopefully we can, uh, but if not, we'll be watching them on TV as well. Uh, we're hoping that we can, like I say, but uh, uh, we have to make some changes in our plans to do so. And uh, and and if we are, you'll see yelling and shouting and jumping in back up and down in the, in the stadium has been as well. I'm sure I'll be hearing your voices over everyone else as well. Well, I'm so proud of your grandson. I can only imagine what it's like for both of you. If you do come back nine time zones back, we'll be here cheering alongside of you with snacks for everyone to have as well. So I'm glad to see you guys get some rest. Congratulations. And please let your grandson know that everyone's rooting for the whole team back home. Laura, we'll do that. And uh, we'd also like to shout out to our friends at St. Andrew uh, for backing us as well. During the entire match, we were receiving uh, emails, it seems, every, not emails, but text messages every three or four seconds from uh, people that were also on pins and needles. And uh, it was just uh, exhilarating, not only here, but like you said, over nine time zones. I love it. And I see that you have, Vicki, I see you match the glasses to the outfit. Um, I love it. I love the whole thing about it. It's wonderful. Nice to see you both. <laughs> you take care. Congratulations. Well, I love having that bright spot and everyone is rooting for that team. We'll be watching on Saturday as well and waiting with bated breath to see what happens. But, you know, sometimes the reality hits back home in Washington, D.C., and the sharp turns we take when we think about the politics here doesn't always put a smile on your face. And so we'll talk now about the Republican leaders who have been condemning Trump's dinner with the white supremacist and former Trump advisors testifying to the January 6th committee and a federal grand jury investigating the insurrection. Back with me now, David Urban. We're also joined with CNN political commentator Paul Bagala and CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams is here as well. I'm glad to see all of you here today and thinking about this. And we'll just say one more time, go Team USA about this. Qu- quite yes. a turn from Donald yeah, Trump. I'm just saying, look, <laughs> that's the nature of the beast, my friend. We will do the turn. We'll do the, what do they say in Friends? You got to pivot. You got to pivot, right? You got to pivot up the stairs. But thinking about the pivots, I mean, frankly, there was a bit of a Thanksgiving 
pass that was given to many of the Republican members of the Senate and the House with respect to not coming out immediately and talking about that dinner. You're seeing condemnation now, far more widespread. Senator Mitch McConnell speaking about this issue. You know, when you think about this, Paul, the statements made by Senator Mitch McConnell, I mean, he's already not persona. He's persona non grata with Donald Trump. So that might contribute to it. But are you seeing a shift and a change in the winds here from the willingness of people to speak out? Not really. Not enough. Um, the, the Republican Party has to drive the extremists out. They were set up to win a landslide in this midterm. He had high inflation, crime surging, trouble at the border, Biden unpopular, and they snatched defeat out of the jaws of victory. Oh, it's pa- this is painful to listen to. <laughs> but it's all true. Now, look, this, there's some history here. My party, the Democratic Party, 100 years ago was the party of segregation, lynching, the most racist. The Ku Klux Klan probably had a dozen senators who were all Democrats. Okay, my party drove them out and went from me to party of George Wallace to party of Barack Obama. Okay, Ronald Reagan and William F. Buckley helped to drive the John Birch Society, which was a pretty radical right wing group in the 50s and 60s, out of the Republican Party created the modern conservative movement and made them a dominant party in America. Republicans have to do that again. They have to drive these extremists out. And if that includes Donald Trump, and I think it does, it'll be good for the Republicans, good for America. You know, thinking about this too more broadly, I'm taking a step back because you have, of course, this dinner. But you also have, we also are focusing on tonight as well, David, and that is, and, and Elliot, the idea of Stephen Miller testifying. I mean, Stephen Miller is the first known witness, if I'm not mistaken, to testify since the DOJ appointed a special counsel. This is pretty significant. It's pretty significant because, number one, it gets you very close to the the former president. Now, look, the problem is that we're not going to know what he said. And frankly, if anything, that he provided uh, the grand jury was actually all that useful or if he felt that he had criminal exposure and just pled the fifth the whole time. But... It is a very senior staffer to the former president coming in and talking to a grand jury that, you know, every day we have these moments where we ought to step back and just think of how remarkable that fact is. Um, and so you know, perhaps when, when the books are written on this information on this will come out uh, or if somebody's charged with a crime, you'll find out what he said. Um, but no, it, it's a hugely uh, significant moment, uh, I think, in criminal justice history, but also in the, the arc of the story of Donald Trump. I mean, how about the arc politically, David? I mean, just hearing about all the things that are happening, there's a lot of news just tonight alone. Mark Meadows, you've got Stephen Miller, and you've got a whole plethora of other things as well. You have Mitch McConnell talking about somebody being disqualified from office. Not a too subtle nod to say, I don't want you to run. This is exhausting for the Republican electorate, I would assume. Sure. I mean, listen, so to, to Paul's point, right, in, the, in the, these, this midterm election, independents broke away from Republicans in record numbers because of what Paul was saying, right? They, they looked down, they looked at their, their ballots and they, and they voted against extremism, right? So they, they, they had a choice to make. They could pick a Republican or Democrat and they were fearful if they voted for the Republican, it would lead to more extremism. And, and so we need as a party, Republicans, if we want to win, we need to do a lot of things, but we need to win back those independents. We need to win back those moderate Republicans and moderates in America. We're not going to do so by having dinner with Nick Fuentes, people that deny the Holocaust and the likes. I mean, a simple Google search would have said, hmm, maybe this guy shouldn't come to dinner tonight, right? I mean, there's, it, it is, it, it's just beyond, you know, it's beyond, I, I didn't even understand how it even happens, right? On a staff level, how does it happen? I promise you, Donald Trump probably had no idea who the guy was. 
So how he got in there is, is probably you know, a very interesting story. Just figure that out, right? Who's the staff person that let the person in the door who said, yeah, this is a good idea for the president That's, to have lunch you know, and dinner? But, but he knew who Ye was, though, right? Well, but, but he does know Kanye, I think it's just right? an important that all of us here, the three of us, have worked for elected officials in some way, right? And someone had to be in the room uh, to have at least done the Google and, and, and search. And this, like is, this is my point, right? And so yeah. who didn't say, yeah. no, this is bad? I don't care if you're the door. I don't care where you are. We've all done it. You lay on the tracks. You say, this isn't happening, yeah. right? And unfortunately... With the former president, we see this a lot with Mark Meadows and with other folks who are now testifying before grand juries. Well, the idea of yes people yes. around um, people in power is not novel, but it certainly has been indicative of this, this prior administration. We'll talk more about this just ahead, everyone. And the Supreme Court has questioned the Biden administration's authority to prioritize which non-citizens to deport. The legal challenge brought by two Republican state attorneys general We'll see what's at stake. The Supreme Court questioning the Biden administration's authority to prioritize which non-citizens to deport. The challenge coming from two Republican state attorneys general, one in Texas and one in Louisiana, who say the policy goes against federal immigration law. David Urban, Maria Cardona, and Ariane DeVogue are back to talk about all of this. So first, Ariane, set the stage for us here. This case is about this tension, about what the Biden administration is able to set as priorities about who to actually pursue deportation against, right? Right. What it really is is the latest battle, right, between conservatives and the Biden administration, particularly on immigration. It's been an all-out war. But here in this case, in 2021, the Biden administration set forth its priorities about which non-citizens who had committed certain crimes could be uh, deported. And the guidelines went through the priorities. They said, for example, that those individuals that are a threat to national security, uh, public safety, border security, they would be prioritized. But the guidelines also gave a lot of discretion, right, to uh, immigration officials. And that's because there's something like 11 million non-citizens right now, and the government can't handle them all. And also it's worth noting that other administrations, like the Trump administration, the Clinton administration, they have set their own priorities. But here, these two states, Texas and Louisiana, these uh, Republican attorney generals say, look, this violates federal law. Federal law says that these people shall be detained, so these priorities are in conflict. And in court today, you could see the justices really struggling. On one hand, the conservatives did seem to buy into the fact that Louisiana and Texas had the legal right Mm -hmm. to bring this. And that's a big deal, right? Because as Elena Kagan complained, she said, if you're going to allow Texas and Louisiana to come in here, then every time a state doesn't like an immigration policy of the federal government, they'll be back in court. So that was one issue. But when you got to the merits of this dispute, the heart of the dispute, do these guidelines violate the federal law? The conservative justices were a little bit more torn. Because you saw Chief Justice John Roberts. He said, you know, I see the language shall, but... If we allow this, it's going to create kind of chaos because, in fact, the government does not have uh, the resources to deal with all of this immigration. Yeah. That was the heart of it. 
And, you know, thinking about this, the politics of what you described, in fact, you're both nodding along thinking about how it's all at stake here. Mm-hmm. I mean, the immigration debate is raging still to this very moment. What do you make of this tension? Oh, God, Maria. Well, I, I'm, it's exactly what Ariane said. This is the conservative states, I think, just trying to cause chaos, trying to be a, um, a problem for the, for the Biden administration. It's important to note that this goes back so many administrations, and what they call it is prosecutorial discretion. I worked at INS under the Clinton administration. They were doing it then. Imagine now that there are double the amount of undocumented immigrants in this country, and these attorneys general in these conservative states really believe that the federal government can detain 11 million undocumented immigrants tomorrow. That's what they're arguing. Number one, that's unrealistic. The economy would collapse in one day if we did that. But isn't a larger issue, though, Maria, I would assume for many Republicans looking at this is, why are there 11 million undocumented uh, Maria, I was going to say, Maria's making the case for conservative Republicans right now. Well, no, well, actually, no, because, and this, I think, goes to the original argument, we, you and I have talked about this. Immigration is one of the most complicated issues complicated. that has really been an issue for so many administrations. This is not going to get fixed until Republicans and Democrats come together in a common sense, sane manner. And we were so close so many times until, frankly, in the last decade, it has been the conservative ultra-right wing that has said absolutely look, not, look, and they have blown it look, out of the listen, water. Listen, I'd like to see the vice president or the president actually go to the border, right, and, and make it an issue, right? I think that's what a lot of people... Is that the did. only way No, 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 but listen, no, 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 <laughs> Maria. If you want to shine a light on it, the president, you know this, the bully pulpit, the president of the United States has the biggest megaphone, the biggest microphone. If it's that big an issue for the, the, this, this president and this administration, he should go to the border and, and, and highlight it's, it and say, listen, we've got to work together, Republicans. Everyone understands it's, it's a huge issue, David. We were so close in 2013 to come to an understanding. The Gang of Eight had passed it in the Senate, comprehensive immigration reform. Then it went to the House, and John Boehner uh, said uh, very clearly to Barack Obama, President Obama, that he was not going to pass this because he knew it would pass uh, for, with mostly Democratic votes. President Trump could have been transformational on this issue, David. He also had an opportunity to do this. Chuck Schumer offered $25 billion in border security in exchange for some kind of legalization plan of the 11 million undocumented immigrants. And they blew it out of the water as well. There's got to be conference reform on Dreamers, on DACA. Yes. We've got to understand that the people here aren't going anywhere. We've done this before. Exactly. When we did conference immigration reform, the notion of touchback, of sending people back, just not it's not going to work. And so in the Reagan administration, there was amnesty. I don't know if people are willing to do that, but we've got we've got to come together as a country and recognize there's a Absolutely huge, agreed. huge problem on our southern border. Huge problem. Narco trafficking, yes. fentanyl, trafficking of humans. It's every bad thing that you can imagine. But well, you know, I'll tell you, I, I tell you we, we seem to have our marching orders, but not the bipartisanship to actually accomplish something. More on this. David and moment. I can do it. You <laughs> I, I nominate the both of you we to probably, do it. We probably It'll could. Right. But please, allow there to be a camera and Ariane and I to be there as well. We we'll get struck down that. by the court. They'll get struck I mean, down by the court. They don't even you, respect shall. You need shall. your expertise. I mean, it's about shall. It's also about, well, we shall. shall. The, the justice is going say the legislation is no. not clear enough because it says shall. We no. shall move on it's from frivolous. this point temporarily, everyone, because New York City's mayor, Eric Adams, is ordering officers to intervene and, if necessary, involuntarily commit someone suffering from a mental health crisis. We shall 
talk about this new mandate next. New York City Mayor Eric Adams today announcing a major push to remove those with severe and untreated mental illness from the city streets and the city subways, announcing that now first responders, including members of the police and fire departments, will be expected to enforce a state law that gives them the power to intervene when someone appears to be suffering from a mental health crisis and to potentially commit them involuntarily. A common misunderstanding persists that we cannot provide involuntary assistance unless the person is violent, suicidal, or presenting a risk of imminent harm. This myth must be put to rest. The announcement already drawing concern from civil rights activists. That's discussed now with CNN National Security Analyst Juliet Kayyem and Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. Let me start with you on this, Juliet, because when you're thinking about yeah. it and the idea of first responders and being able to, on the one hand, ascertain in real time and assess whether the person has a mental illness, that sounds like a very difficult charge even given the concerns, obviously, that have been raised by the presence of people who they believe might do harm. Yes. And and I have to say the details are have not really been disclosed. This was a press announcement without a lot of details behind it. Uh, And he and as we've as I always say in teaching at school, public policy, what's the harm you're trying to solve? And this is where I think the mayor was incredibly vague. He talks about there's a mythology about what what police officers can do. So what we need to make clear is that first, this is this is not consistent with the movement in most jurisdictions towards non-law enforcement intervention in mental health issues. That's the rise of the three one, the six one one phone number. Uh, that you that if people do seem disturbed, even if nonviolent, you don't want to have police come in because of just the nature of of, of the potential conflict. The second is, of course, if you're saying, as the mayor was saying, uh, that uh, you can commit nonviolent people. Uh, in, in perhaps even involuntarily, what is the what is the trigger that is going to convince a police officer or a fire official uh, that that person is in fact mm. a threat? And that gap mm. seems to me to be something that has to be filled by the mayor and public policy people. You can't just throw this stuff out here without a lot of thinking because the danger, as we know, uh, is real. Well, John, let me ask you about it, because New York State did pass the law in 2021 that allows first responders to involuntarily commit someone in need of immediate mental health care. You know, John, that there is a a lot on the plates of law enforcement officials and first responders. There's a lot of criticism that has been leveled against them for their inability to decipher what is a mental health crisis from something that would um, initiate arrest proceedings, for example. I wonder what you make of this new policy and the implementation of it. Well, there's a lot of dependencies there, Laura. I mean, first of all, I think what Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, knows is he's in a homeless crisis. Uh, There's an estimated 48,000 homeless people in New York City. That's kind of the biggest number we've seen in New York since the Great Depression. Now, the old standard was for someone to be picked up and forced to go 
um, for a psychiatric evaluation or to be involuntarily committed, they had to pose serious risk of imminent harm to themselves or others. The new standard is expanded. The law hasn't changed. The interpretation of it has. The new standard is persons who appear to be mentally ill and who display an inability to meet basic living needs even where there is no recent dangerous act. So um, to, to talk about, um, you know, what are the standards, they give a number of case studies in the memoranda which are being studied, and there are co-response teams that are mixed with police and clinicians. But what they're trying to do is expand the ability to get people to help who clearly need it, even if they're not acting violently. It's getting cold, and they're going to suffer. You know, the word I honed in on and my civil rights background was those who appear to be something. And, yeah. you know, there's always going to be that moment in thinking about how does one ascertain? Is there the training? Is there the resources? Are they available? And the, the scope of the problem you describe, even if at some point, won't they, they'll meet a ceiling by the ability to actually be able to house and, and, um, and treat. But this is, as you now. mentioned... Yeah, as you're at it right now. And as you mentioned, Juliet, and we'll talk about this another time as well as this unfolds, there has not been the, the level of details, and that's the devil. The devil's yeah. in those details. So we'll wait to see more information and how this all pans out. Juliet, John, nice seeing both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, Will Smith is now opening up about the Oscars incident where he slapped Chris Rock in front of the entire world. You won't want to miss what he's saying about that. Finally, next. Actor Will Smith opening up to The Daily Show's Trevor Noah about slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars earlier this year. That was a horrific night, uh, as you can imagine. I was going through something that night, you know, and uh, not that that, you know, justifies my behavior yeah, at all. No, no, I would just say, you know, you're asking what did I learn, and it's that... Um, we just gotta be nice to each other, man. You know, it's like, it's hard. And I guess the thing that was most painful for me is I took my heart and made it hard for other people. You know, right. and it's like, I understood the idea where they say hurt people hurt people. Yeah. I was gone, dude, I was gone, I was gone. I was, um, you know, that was a, a rage that had been bottled for a really right. long time. CNN has reached out to Chris Rock about Will Smith's recent comments, but we've yet to hear back from him. Let's talk now with uh, CNN contributor Nichelle Turner about her reaction to what we are seeing. I'm glad to see you, Nichelle, because I always look to your reaction you, to so many of the issues that are happening of the day. And I wonder what you make of the statements that he has said, the idea of hurt people hurting people. And again, the timing. We are almost in December we're just now hearing after that July, um, I think it was on Instagram, he posted something. We're now hearing from him in an interactive capacity. What do you make of it? Well, number one, we're hearing from him in an interactive capacity because he has a new movie that's coming out. Ooh. So he's got a movie to promote. He knows he has to do 
press for that. And so that's why we're hearing from him. And of course, when you sit down to do press for a new movie, you're going to get asked about this because we haven't heard you talk about it. So I think that's, you know, number one, why we're hearing from him right now. Uh, Number two, you know, I think it's interesting what he was saying, hurt people, hurt people. I think all those things are true. Um, I think that all of us that night, as disappointed and disgusted we were with what happened, we all kind of said at the time that slap wasn't about Chris Rock. That slap was about a whole bunch of other stuff that Will Smith was apparently dealing with. You could see that. You know it wasn't about that joke. You know that joke may have been a culmination of a lot of things that maybe he had been bottling up. I will say this, though, hearing him say he was going through something that night. Um, was very interesting because when we were on the red carpet, my co-host Kevin Frazier and I, and Will uh, came in with Jada on the Oscar red carpet, they just kind of breezed by. And it was a very odd, didn't talk to anybody, didn't say anything. And that is so unlike Will Smith. So we both looked at each other that night and said, something going on? Like, what's happening here? So to hear him validate and say something actually was happening um, makes a lot of sense now because we did think that something was going on that night. And of course, one thing that was going on, I would turn to my panel on this, Michelle, as well, he was up for an Oscar. He was up for a win in King Richard. And obviously this all happened that night. I want to play for you guys, though. He does talk about his childhood. He doesn't just talk about her people hurting people. He talks about the little boy inside of him. Here he is. It was a lot of things. It was the, the, the little boy that watched his father beat up his mother. You know, it's, a, you know, all of that just bubbled up yeah. in, in, in that moment. Um, you know, I just, that's not who I want to be. Right. You know, you've known me for a long time, so you know me personally, mm-hmm. so you know. Um, but, you know, y'all might not know. Um. And yet we feel like we do know him, Elliot, right? People think they know the celebrities around Prince of Bel-Air. What's your reaction to well, this? Okay, look, uh, if, if he grew up in a home in which domestic violence was a norm, that is a profound tragedy, and we ought to pray for him and his family. It's a, it's a horrific thing that went on that n- does not give him the right to assault someone on national television. And it's, you know, like Crimea River with the hurt people, hurt people nonsense. It is an explanation for what he did, but it's not a justification for it. And it's still a crime. It's still an assault. It was still wrong. He shouldn't have done it. And that was just a nonsense interview of a man who's trying to sell a movie. It's silly. Mm, What do you think, Maria? I think that he absolutely feels bad about it. I think that he is completely sorrowful that it happened uh, and, and he wants to make amends. The problem is the timing, right? Like you were saying, and Michelle even said it, that he could have been this remorseful a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. He could have tried to speak publicly or explain that he's been trying to reach out to Chris Rock. Chris Rock is the victim here. It's not him. Yes, he went through childhood trauma. And even like he said in the interview, there are people in the audience that are going through trauma right now we don't see them coming up and slapping people in the face on national yeah. television. L- listen, Elliot puts it right. There's, there's no excuse for what he yeah. did, right? I mean, he, he went out and he assaulted a guy in public in, yeah. a, in, a, in a big forum, right? I mean, it, it is not acceptable. However, you know, I would just say if, if he said, look, um, 
you know, he, he was up there, he's talking junk about my wife, I lost my temper, I shouldn't have done it. I mean, more plausible explanation. I mean, the, he's obviously gone to counseling, he's met with some yeah. PR people who said, here's what you got to do to rehab yourself, Here, right, and come, come here's back. The, but here's the right. thinness of that explanation. Right. Would he have done it if it were a woman who'd made the joke? Would he have done it if it were The Rock no. or Vin yeah. Diesel? Well, I mean, a I, bigger I, I guy who made know. the joke. I mean, I don't know. He had his well, wits about I, him fully, yeah. knew what he was doing. It's nonsense. Well, let, well yeah. I... I seriously doubt if The Rock had said it. I'm going to put that <laughs> out there. Right? Right. But, right. but again, exactly. you know, one never knows. Nichelle, let me bring you back in here because you were there in the mm-hmm. area. You were in the space. You've covered this all the time. You have met with and spoken to and interviewed so many people who are in this, uh, in the limelight in these respects. Mm-hmm. I wonder, do you, what do you make of the fact that, you know, he's not going to be able to escape this on the, you know, right. on the movie trail. It's going to, it will haunt him perhaps justifiably, it'll be asked of every of him. It'll also be asked mm-hmm. of Chris Rock until he speaks mm-hmm. about it as well, which mm-hmm. perhaps is, is profoundly unfair. Oh, it, it is. It is. And, and, you know, everyone on the panel is correct when they say Will Smith is not the victim here. Chris Rock is the victim here. Listen, we're talking to Will Smith tomorrow, and we will be asking him about this when we speak with him tomorrow. I will push back a little bit, though. I, I'm not sure that he was making a justification. I think he was explaining. I think that he, you know, back in July, he did make a statement, which I thought he could have gone further in that statement, mm-hmm. saying I was wrong. It was inexcusable. Uh, Chris Rock didn't deserve that. I've reached out to him. And I think he does realize and understand that there is a large faction of people who are just going to say what a lot of the panelists have said is like, well, crime river, boo-hoo. I mean, so what? We don't care. Um, I think there are there is another faction of people that will be able to forgive him. And I think that is kind of uh, what he's starting to do. I honestly I'm so disappointed by what happened because I'm a huge Will Smith fan. But I also don't believe, like he said, I don't think he wants to be that person. And so, you know, will this go away in in healing? I'm not sure. I think that he could have had a, a harder hitting interview. I'm not sure what that would have done. But, they, they you know, Trevor Noah could have gone harder on well, I tell you, I mean, Michelle, you know, I've been a prosecutor and I got to tell you, it's very difficult. You meet people when they've made the worst decision of their lives and then they mm-hmm. meet you. And the idea that I've always been, um, maybe not in my in all of my moments, but I hope to be somebody who believes in redemption. I don't know. That's always available in the court of public opinion. But nice to speak with you as always. Same here, Laura. And thanks to the panel, too. They are great. They were, and they're still here drinking hot cocoa. Well, by the way. seriously. I mean, I mean I, Delta. Well, everyone, but some of us are. No, no cocoa for you. I'm not happy about it. I'll I tell you what, happy. but you know what? There is some joy, and this is a story that is out there right now. Have you heard about this? 51 years later, their daughter had been kidnapped 51 years ago, and now a Texas family is reunited. And it's all thanks to not police work and detective work. It's thanks to a 23andMe DNA test. The amazing story is next. There is the most amazing story in Texas, a, a true miracle for one family. A woman has been reunited with her parents 51 years after she was kidnapped. The family saying Melissa Highsmith was just 22 months old back in 1971 when she was allegedly abducted by a woman who was hired to babysit her. Now reunited thanks to a DNA match from the Ancestry Service 23andMe. 
Joining me now is Lisa Joe Sheely, a genealogy and genetic enthusiast who helped to reunite this family. I'm so glad to hear about this miracle, Lisa, but God, what these families have been through in terms of thinking about 51 years. Tell me, I mean, this wasn't a police investigation that led to this. This was 23andMe ancestry. How did this happen? Um, Basically, you have a family who wasn't willing to give up. Um, Outside of that, I mean, yeah, these, these commercial tests are amazing. They not only do you have 23andMe showing them an obvious match, but you have ancestry. It's just all of this is completely unbelievable. It really is. I mean, how did you come to be involved with the Highsmith family? So I was called in to look at the results. Um, and you had both these platforms telling them what what the you know predicted relationship was between them and these matches. And basically, when I came in, it was like, look at these. Is this what we think it is? And absolutely it was. So it was not a hard genealogy problem to solve. I mean, the idea of how this is coming, I mean, just think of, I remember in in reading more about this and what the mother went through, the criticism unfairly that she faced, the idea of people questioning her, the, the not giving up hope. I mean, this reunification must have been so wonderful to be a part of. I Absolutely. I mean, even just, I, I live in Minnesota. Obviously, this happened in Texas, and you've got a sister in Spain. Um, even from afar, this was amazing. And I'm on the other end of the phone, like, mm. oh, my God, let me know what's going on. <laughs> it's just, it, it's very exciting for everybody. It really is just to see the pictures and to be a part of this, even sort of vicariously feeling it and to know how increasingly these sort of genetic tests are being used to unify families in ways we never anticipated. It really is unbelievable. Thank you so much for allowing us to hear more about this and see this reunification truly beautiful to see. And everyone, thank you for watching this moment and the program today. Our coverage does continue. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.